we have just a little while this morning, we're going to do four parts. So the handout, which I hope you all have, has part one of four, two of four, three of four, four of four. So for this hour, we're going to do part one of four, which is, I think, the first three pages of that handout. So that, that'll be our, our roadmap as we, we start off this morning. So what I'd like to do, my goal for all four parts, is to help you get to know your conscience better. Get to know your conscience better. I'd like to introduce you to the conscience. And J.D. Crowley, whom Rich just mentioned, missionary in Cambodia, uh, tells this story often that for him, this wasn't really an issue for him until one time he was back on home leave from Cambodia, and he was in America, and he was walking through a living room there with a group of people, and, and someone had their, they're sitting on the couch and had their feet up on the coffee table, and he, he walked over and stopped, and you know what he was waiting for, right? <laughs> He's waiting for them to put their feet down. But oh, what, what barbaric person is going to keep their feet up when I'm trying to walk by? Because in Asia, where he was from, there's little more offensive than keeping your feet up and, and, and making someone else step over their feet. You don't step over someone's feet. But in America, in many places, that's not even an issue. And in his conscience, he'd realized that had become an issue. I can't step over someone's feet. And it, it made him start to pause and go, okay, how does this work? Why did I feel it was wrong to do that? But here they don't think it's wrong. And it started a, a path where he just thought through carefully, okay, when I'm in Asia, why is it this set? When I'm in America, it's this set. When I'm with, when I'm with these people in America, it's do this. When I'm with these people, it's do this. What's going on there? So that's where the, the wheels got turning for him. For me, uh, I started thinking more deeply about how conscience works when my wife, Jenny, and I moved from Greenville, South Carolina. We were uh, in a culture of, of fundamentalism, uh, a good, good one. It was Bob Jones University. And we moved to Chicago area uh, where I'd work on a degree at Trinity where your Pastor Miller went. And different context. So the, we lived on campus. We were... Uh, my wife was working in a Christian school that was a kind of a mainstream vanilla evangelical school. Um, I'm, my colleagues are not Bob Jones people. And I started realizing that people in one context would, would lob verbal grenades at the other. That wasn't very charitable. And both people did it. And not everyone at each side did it, but some people on both sides did it. And it made me start wondering, how are they thinking about how the conscience works here? And I think that's a key piece in and understanding how those two groups often relate wrongly, <laughs> both sides. So that got me going on this, and then J.D. and I just happened to cross paths, and we're like, we, I'd like to write on this, I'd like to write on this. So we just uh, joined forces, this was three or four or five years ago, and just this last summer, we drafted our book on the conscience, which hopefully will come out next year. So that's where we are, and I'd like to share the fruit of that with you uh, today and tomorrow night. So let's, uh, let's dive in here. Uh, I'm not quite ready to get to your first question on your handout, but just one more introductory item here. Um, I've found that when you talk about the conscience, it's kind of like a buy one, get ten free deal, where in this sense, you think, oh, I'll just study the conscience, and then as you study it, you realize, oh, this intersects with, with progressive sanctification and with anthropology and with the doctrine of God and with apologetics and evangelism and missions. It connects to so many different important areas. So as you understand this, you may find light bulbs going off in different doctrinal areas, and I hope that happens for you. Uh, it'll happen in different areas for some of you uh, based on where you are in your, in your journey with Christ right now. So uh, these are the types of, of questions, I think, that 
we often don't ask when it comes to conscience. Now, would you ever mention your clean conscience in your salvation testimony? Ever, ever done that? Paul did. In your discipling relationships, would you ever emphasize the importance of keeping a clean conscience? Paul did. Uh, did those who discipled you ever talk about the conscience very much? Or did you know that getting your conscience under the lordship of Christ is one of the keys to success in church ministry and missions? And did you know that Paul forged an unbreakable link between getting your conscience under the lordship of Christ and making God famous around the world? This is huge. So if you're hoping that I'm going to solve all the scruples of specific conscience issues you have in mind over the next day and a half here, you'll be disappointed. It's not the plan. Uh, I hope to give you principles that you can apply to those. Uh, but uh, there's, there's a big misperception with conscience-related controversies that, that those occur only in strict churches. I, I was just talking to Pastor Miller about the type of church this is, and it sounds like a really healthy church. So I don't know any dirt on you at all. So if, if I say anything that sounds like someone told him about me, I didn't hear anything, seriously. So I just have an idea of how churches often work. Um, so often people think this. They think uh, people who are more conservative, more strict, more rules, more standards, they've got conscience issues. That's for them. And everyone's on a spectrum somewhere. There's always someone to your right and someone to your left. So I don't know exactly where you all are on the spectrum, but uh, you're probably all over the place individually. Uh, people tend to think that the people on the right to the right of them, the more conservative people, they have the conscience issues. So, you know, people who have scruples over how you dress or what music you listen to or what you drink or whatever, it's those people, they've got issues. But, but people who say that or think that, they're often the ones fighting over fair trade coffee or parenting styles or whatever the latest issue. Everyone has conscience issues. Everyone thinks they know the right view on a particular conviction. And it applies to everyone in here, okay? So I just want to make that point up front. All right, now let's, let's jump in here on your handout. What exactly is the conscience? Um, I'm going to give you, I think, nine principles and then two really important principles to start off. Um, in your mind, if you could think of an image, cartoon image, of the conscience, does one come to mind? There's a really famous one. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'll come back to that one. I'm thinking of one where there's, uh, there are two items over your shoulders. You've seen something like that before? Okay, so they're called the shoulder angel and the, sh and the shoulder demon or devil. I like to say demon because the, there's one devil. Anyway, so a shoulder demon. And usually it's the angel on your right, demon on your left. And the idea is that they're both speaking into your mind and you hear these voices in your head and they're trying to get you to do bad or do good. You've seen something like this, right? Okay. That's how most people think of the conscience. Like there's this internal battle. Which way am I going to go here? What's the right thing to do? What's wrong? What should we do? And I, I think there's some, that we resonate with that because there is something going on inside our head. But rather than use that image, I'd like to use the Bible as my base for the images here. So stick with me. I'm going to give some principles, and then we're going to go right to the text. First principle. Conscience is a human capacity. So I could say conscience is a personal capacity. In other words, only persons, only people have consciences. So people include humans. They also include God himself, angels. People have 
consciences. Animals are not people. So some of you might be thinking, what are you saying about my pet dog? <laughs> uh, well, they might seem like they're sad and have consciences, but they're not people, and they don't have a conscience that can make moral judgments. Now, we all know that about cats already, but... <laughs> uh, okay, so... Um, and notice it's a human capacity. So that's hedging for not every human reaches that capacity. So uh, humans who are very, very young, some who have mental disabilities, some people who lose that ability later in life, but it's a capacity that only humans can attain. All right? Second principle, conscience is an aspect of God's image. You're made in God's image, so it shouldn't surprise you that you have a conscience. God is a, a moral God. So you are a moral creature who makes moral judgments. This is inherent in personhood. It's not a result of the fall. It's not a result of sin. Jesus, I believe, has a conscience, a perfect conscience, one he's never sinned against. This is, this is something that is part of being in God's image. Third principle, conscience seems independent. You think about it. Why would you even care what your conscience says? It's like this voice in your head that is independently making these judgments, why not just dismiss that? Why should you care what your conscience says about you? Well, this is a great mystery. Um, I think, uh, as the, many of the Puritans showed, is that there's a relationship here between Romans 1 and Romans 2, and that's the answer to this mystery. So let me just read uh, two verses from Romans 1 and three from Romans 2, and then I'll try to connect them. So Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Here's chapter 2. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Okay, so you, you put those passages together, and it looks like we all have a sense of what's going on in our conscience uh, individually is a secret. So what's going on in your individual conscience, that's a, that's a secret. What's going on in yours is a secret. Yours, it seems like it's a secret. But an all-powerful, all-knowing God is in on the secret and will someday judge us. He knows. And it seems like Paul's saying, you all know that. You, you read about these murder mysteries where someone committed a, the perfect murder and they're the only ones who know about it, and then it plagues in the rest of their life. What is that? I think that's conscience. That's conscience. Even though no other human knows who's alive, they know and their conscience is plaguing them with guilt. So every human, I think, intuits very strongly that they're accountable to an all powerful, all-knowing God. Next principle, conscience is a priceless gift from God. A priceless gift from God. It's a, it's a good gift. It's a priceless gift. And is it something that your mother or your father gave you? No. It's something that God himself gave you. And it's, it's the kind of gift that you take for granted sometimes. Like uh, our stove was on last night before we had dinner. And if I were to walk by, it's one of these flat-top stoves, and I just kind of brushed my hand over the hot part, you know what would happen. It would, I get an immediate sensation of, ouch, that is hot. What is that? 
God gave me a sense of, of feeling where I can feel danger, danger, pull back. That's, that's a gift. Now, if I were to develop calluses or, or a certain kind of leprosy where I lose my sense of, of feeling and then I, I rubbed my hand over uh, a surface like that, I wouldn't pull back, would I? And, and damage would occur. I could you know, burn my hand off. Uh, but we have this mechanism that makes me want to pull back. The conscience functions like that. The conscience is supposed to prick you when there's danger. Pull back, pull back. It's a gift from God. And another principle, the conscience is an on-off switch, not a dimmer. It's, it's, the conscience is all about right and wrong. It's black and white. It doesn't do grayscale. It doesn't nuance. It doesn't say it's complicated. It's all or nothing. It, and it leads you to either what Romans 2 says, either accuse or excuse. It wants you to make these stark pronouncements, guilty or not guilty. Another principle, your conscience is for you and you only. It's your personal conscience. There's a principle here. You could call it M-Y-O-C. Mind your own conscience. Really. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. Another principle. No two people have exactly the same conscience. If everyone had the same conscience exactly, would we need Romans 14 in the Bible? Or 1 Corinthians 8? Not at all. But because we have different consciences, we need passages like that. So we're going to, God willing, talk about that one tonight and a little bit uh, later this morning. So there's a figure, a couple of triangles on your hand out there. Look at the first one that says, the title, Two Consciences. I'll help you make sense of this. Okay, so the shaded triangle is one person, call that Christian one, and the other triangle, the one on the right, is Christian two. So which one of those Christians has more rules in their conscience? Christian two, right? You have more rules, okay? So... They share C, D, E, and F. Those are ones they agree on. Christian 1 has a couple rules, A and B, that the other Christian doesn't have in their conscience. But Christian 2 has way more rules. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O. And t tell you what, Christian 1, when he looks at Christian 2, he's thinking, that guy's got issues. Like, <laughs> what is his problem? Doesn't he know he's free there? But, but, but he's, he ha why is he doing that? This is foolish. It kind of looks down on that person. And then Christian 2 looks over at Christian 1 and thinks, what's wrong with you? I, he, he despises him, thinks Christians shouldn't be doing that. Uh, do you have any idea what I'm... I, I'll flesh this out as we go. Okay, so I, I think you can guess where we're going here. So the Christians have different consciences, different issues in their consciences. Next principle, no one's conscience matches perfectly with God's will. So look at the next set of triangles there. That's just taking one more triangle and putting it on top of the previous diagram. And that next triangle is supposed to be God's will. What are really what should and should not be in your conscience? And this is the case for all of us. This is a simplistic diagram, but the point is for every person, there are things that should be in your conscience that should not be in your conscience. There, there, there's a mix. And so we, we should be saying, Lord, help me know what stays, what should go, what should I add. That's a lifelong pursuit. And we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God to help us. But that, that's our mission in life is to be correctable of, okay, this has been in my conscience. It doesn't need to be there. 
this hasn't been in my conscience, it should be there, uh, have that kind of attitude. That's just a lifelong process of learning as a Christian. You never have it all together. All right? Next principle, number nine on your handout. Conscience can be broken. So, like people do with other valuable gifts from God, we can damage, abuse, and eventually break this very good gift. And we can do it in two ways. We can do it by being insensitive over, and by being oversensitive. Insensitive, oversensitive. And there's a passage that puts them together. But let me explain it first. So we make cons- our conscience insensitive when we, we refuse to listen to it. We don't listen to the warning. We block it out. And we're oversensitive when we pack it with too many rules, like J.D. Crowley does with his suitcase when he, his suitcase when he goes from America back to Cambodia. He overpacks his suitcase. Um, so both kinds of conscience breakdown, that breakdown can appear in the same person. Listen to this sentence from 1 Timothy 4. Uh, Paul's referring to false teachers who seared their conscience, and he says, uh, he said they, they've seared their conscience, and they've imposed strict and unnecessary scruples about abstinence from food and marriage. Okay, I didn't quote it, but I summarized it, paraphrased it. The idea is you can have a seared conscience, and at the same time, add a whole bunch of rules that are not necessary as well. Seared conscience, insensitive conscience, and over-scrupulous uh, rules about marriage and, and eating that are way more than what God says. Same false teacher has both in the same package. It's 1 Timothy 4. Jesus made the same connection when he was talking to spiritual leaders, and he says that you are straining out gnats on the one hand. That's the over-scrupulous part. And then, what are you doing with camels? Yeah, you're, you're choking on camels. And I, just one example of this happened in our own country. Uh, there was a time when there were some very conservative churches that would have very specific personal standards, like maybe don't ever smoke a cigarette or dress a certain way or you're not welcome to visit our church service, and yet they wouldn't let people with certain skin colors walk through the doors. It happened in our country. So I would call that choking on a camel while you're straining out gnats. Right? So that can happen in our own country. That can happen in your own heart. So what are the, I'm calling here, and by the way, this is a collaborative effort with my friend J.D. Crowley. Uh, what are we calling the two great principles of conscience? Well, uh, one is that God is the only Lord of conscience. The other, obey your conscience. Let's look at that, obey your conscience first because it's more obvious. Obey your conscience. Even unbelievers have this built into them. They know deep in their hearts it's important to obey your conscience. Uh, the Bible teaches this in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. If you go against your conscience, even when, if you go against your conscience, even when it's warning you correctly, man, it's always a sin. If, okay, let's say something is not a sin, but your conscience tells you not to do it, and then you do it, that's a sin. You got that? Let's say it another way. So if you think activity A over here is wrong, like, let's say, drinking root beer is wrong. Is drinking root beer wrong? I won't make a defense for that, but just believe me, it's not wrong. Okay, so, but if you think, if you think drinking root beer is wrong, and then you drink root beer, you sin against your conscience. Okay, you with me? I think you're with me. All right, so we'll, we'll come back to that one. Okay, principle one, God is the only Lord of the conscience. This is the one ring to rule them all, and in the conscience, bind them. And this is, this is it. Uh, your conscience is not the Lord of itself. That's called idolatry. Get this. Your, your 
you yourself are not the Lord of your conscience. Your parents are not the Lord of your conscience, though thank God for parents, and you should be following them if you're young. Your pastors are not the Lord of your conscience, so they care for your soul, and you'd be wise uh, to follow their counsel. Fellow believers are not the Lord of your conscience. There's one Lord of your conscience, the Lord, God. God is the Lord of your conscience. And that means that the principle, uh, obey your conscience, has a crucial limitation. Rarely, but sometimes, this will happen. That will conflict with the other principle. Principles one and two can conflict. Obey your conscience, God's the only Lord. And what do you do when that happens? Now, we know what happens when it's with government. We have this category for obey God rather than men from, from Acts. Well, that applies to you. you you're a person. Obey God rather than yourself. Uh, if your conscience itself is telling you something that's wrong, uh, you need to go with God. Now, in the service this morning, we're going to come back to that particular issue for the whole service. All right, so now it's time to look at the 30 occurrences. This is on the page 2 and following of your handout. Look at the 30 occurrences of the word conscience in the New Testament, and then we'll try to define this term. Really, we're going to spend so much time talking about the conscience, up front we should define it. So that, that's our goal here is to define it. And in order to define it knowledgeably, we need to look at the book. We need to look at the data. And the word conscience translates a Greek word, synesis, and that Greek word occurs 30 times. And what I'd like to show you is all 30 times that this word occurs in the New Testament. Okay? Um, and you might think, okay, this is... What's the point of this? No, there's a big point in this. You want to see the data, but also, let's imagine um, you wanted to know, you didn't know what a car door is. It's, maybe you're learning English for the first time, and you see this phrase, car door. Like, what is that? Well, I could give you a sample of 100 sentences in English that use the word car door. And if you're, if you're t paying careful attention to different verbs and objects used w around that word and adjectives, you can get a sense for what car door is. You, you know this is something you shut or that can be smashed or dented or painted or you get the idea, right? So when you look at the words used around another word, you get a better sense of what that, that word means. So as we study, as we look at the 30 passages where the word conscience occurs, on, the, on your handout, I've italicized some words that will help us get a better idea of what conscience is, okay? So let's just read through these. I'll make some comments as we read through them. First passage is Acts 23, 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. See the word good italicized there? So Paul is faithfully matching his actions to his understandings of God's moral standards. That's what it, here it means to have a good conscience. Next one here, Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear, clear conscience toward both God and man. So Paul always tries to make sure his actions match what he believes are God's moral standards. Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience, hey, now we have a verb. What does the conscience do? It tells us here. While their conscience also bears witness Okay, so their conscience can bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this is saying that Gentiles, by their obeying many of God's moral demands, even though they have no access to them, 
they show they have a certain consciousness of those moral standards. It's a consciousness that's clear enough to allow their own minds to either accuse or excuse their actions. And it's clear enough for God to use this evidence on Judgment Day, verse 16 of Romans 2. Next passage, Romans 9, 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience, here's another verb, bears me witness. Okay, that's like the last one. Bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So the conscience can bear witness. Paul's own moral consciousness confirms through the Holy Spirit in this passage that he's not lying. Next one, Romans 13, 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So you're supposed to act in a certain way. Your conscience leads you to act in a certain way. In this case, we must submit to governmental authorities, not only because they may punish us, but so that our own moral consciousness won't condemn us. Okay, that's helpful. Now, the most condensed groupings of the word conscience occur in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. So here's a bunch of them here. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being, here's a first description, weak is, here's another, defiled. All right, weak and defiled. Helpful. That helps us get an idea of what the conscience can be. Uh, so when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having, having been offered, sacrificed to a god. And, and when they do that, they defile their moral consciousness because, in this case, it's oversensitive. It's misinformed. Next one, 8.10, 1 Corinthians 8.10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. Now, in this case, uh, in, in the Greek text, the word conscience is the grammatical subject. So I'm going to read a more formal translation. See if you can follow this. Uh, For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, being weak, be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? The, the, the conscience is what is encouraged. It, and that word encouraged means emboldened, emboldened to sin. So your conscience can be emboldened to sin. That's what this passage is saying. That the idea is, if anyone sees you who have an informed moral consciousness on this issue, and the issue here is that there are no gods but one, if, if anyone sees you eating in an idol's temple, won't that person who sees you, won't his misinformed moral consciousness be emboldened to sin against his own moral consciousness? That's, that's the idea. So you're eating food sacrificed to idols, which in, at this point, where, where Paul's talking about, is not a sin. That may embolden someone else's conscience to sin by their doing what they think is a sin. You got that? Okay. Next passage, 8.12. Thus, sinning against your brothers, and here's another description, and wounding, wounding their conscience. Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. So when you embolden your brothers and sisters to disregard their moral consciousness, even if their moral consciousness is misinformed, you are sinning not only against them, you're sinning against Christ himself. 10, chapter 10, verses 25 and 27. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question 
on the ground of conscience. So Paul's saying, you don't need to bother asking where your meat came from because it doesn't matter if it was sacrificed to idols. That's a theologically unnecessary question. Eating such meat is not something your moral consciousness should condemn you for. But, next passage, verses 28 and 29, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So here, Paul's saying you shouldn't eat meat that someone told you was sacrificed to idols if the result would be that that person's moral consciousness would condemn you for eating. Dragon? Okay. Next one. 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So he, Paul's saying their own moral consciousness testifies that they conducted themselves in the world with, in, with integrity and godly sincerity. Next one. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So God knows and approves of what they are. God knows. And Paul hopes that the Corinthians' moral consciousness approves as well. So he's challenging the, the people in Corinth. He's challenging them to make a moral judgment about his faithfulness and, vow, and basically say, by your own moral standards, I pass the test. That's what he's saying here. Test me by your conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a, what kind of conscience? A good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul's goal for his solemn charge about these troublemakers in 1 Timothy is that they would, they would return to the highest motivation and standard of all, and that's love. And love flows out of a person's heart who is pure and who thinks and acts consistently with the standards of his moral consciousness. There it is again. Next passage, 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience. So by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So Paul's saying, Timothy, never, ever let go of your faith in God. Don't do that because you've got to always live according to your moral consciousness. If you don't do this, you might be like these other people. Their lives are in shambles. They're destroyed. And John Calvin comments on this passage, a bad conscience is therefore the mother of all heresies. Think about that. So there's a connection between a bad conscience and apostasy. I think that objections to Christianity are not fundamentally intellectual, but fundamentally moral. People might talk about objections that are intellectual, but ultimately it's a matter of, I don't want someone else telling me how to live. And John 3 talks about people who hate the light because their deeds are evil. They love their evil deeds. The ultimate reason people aren't coming is they love their sin. 1 Timothy 3.9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is talking about deacons. So if you're a deacon in this assembly, that's for you. It's actually for all Christians. That's what they should all aspire to. Uh, live uprightly, affirm orthodox theology with a pure moral consciousness. Don't deceive others about your character, verse 8 in this passage, or the doctrine you actually believe. That's wicked. Right living, right doctrine go together right here. 1 Timothy 4.2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. 
So by repeatedly suppressing your moral consciousness that does something to your conscience, it sears it. Some translations say seared as with a hot iron. So there's a point where, you, on, at least on some issues, your conscience doesn't function. It doesn't register. You've seared it. It is so insensitive that it doesn't even register when it should be registering. That's a dangerous place to be. Titus, no, where are we? First, uh, 2 Timothy 1.3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. So again, Paul serves God in such a way that his moral consciousness approves of how he serves. Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Defiled. So because of their sins, their minds don't think rightly, and their, their moral consciousness doesn't function rightly. It's defiled. Hebrews 9, 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So this is a, a, uh, an argument from the history of salvation. Paul, not Paul. Some people think it's Paul. It's Hebrews. Author of Hebrews says, Under the Old Covenant, Israelites offered God gifts and sacrifices that couldn't completely clear the condemnation they felt for their moral consciousness, their moral condemnation. Uh, Hebrews 9.14, just a couple of verses later, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So this is saying that the blood of Christ clears all the condemnation we feel from our moral consciousness. It cleanses our moral consciousness, and that enables us to serve the living God. That's something to praise God about. We'll circle back to that one. Hebrews 10.2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Now, this one you can kind of throw out of your sampling. Not, I'm not saying cut out of your Bible. What I mean is when you're trying to understand what, what the word conscience means, there are two places of the 30 where it seems to mean just conscious uh, as opposed to whatever else conscience means. It's in its own category. So even the main Greek dictionary, if you use it, it'll put this verse and one other, 1 Peter 2.19, in its own uh, definitional bracket where it just means awareness. So I would say this is not... Uh, directly applicable to helping us define the word conscience as, as the New Testament normally uses it, okay? Next one, Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is saying we should draw close to God with a sincere heart and with the complete confidence that faith brings for this reason, because Jesus has sprinkled our hearts to cleanse us from a guilty moral consciousness. Awesome. Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. They are sure here that they're living and acting according to the high standards of their moral consciousness. They're trying to live in a way that honors God. The next passage, again, is this, the second of the two that, where the word just means conscious. So I'll skip that one. And 1 Peter 3, 16. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So you should live in such a way that your moral consciousness approves of your actions. And finally, 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're wondering what in the world that means, I guess you can ask Pastor Miller or John Pratt or somebody. That's a tough one. Uh, Here's my take. Uh, I think, go back to verse 20, God saved Noah and his family through water, and that destructive water is a type, it's a pattern of Christian baptism. Now, baptism itself doesn't save you by washing physical filth off you. It represents that God has cleansed your guilty moral consciousness by forgiving your sins through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And I'm following commentaries there by Wayne Grudem and Tom Schreiner. You guys probably have opinions on that passage. I'll keep going. All right. John approves. All right. Yes, sir. I skipped one? Thank you. Second Corinthians 4, 2. Okay, so there he's saying he's commending himself to other people's consciences. So I think he's saying that by plainly setting forth the truth, Paul and the apostles, what they're doing is appealing to everyone's individual conscience, uh, moral consciousness. So God sees all of us as we are. Good. Thank you, sir. All right, so now let's just we read through all that data. Now we need to ask, so what, what can the conscience be? And what can the conscience do? And you could answer these questions just by looking over that list again. And, make, and I'll, I'm going to do it now to make this time go faster. Here's how I'd put it together. What can the conscience be? I'd answer that positively and negatively. So positively, the conscience can be good in, in the sense of being blameless, clear, clean, pure. That's the sense in which it's good. The conscience can be good. It's clear, clean, pure. Uh, and second, the conscience can be cleansed. That is, it's, it's cleared, it's perfected, it's purified, it's washed, it's purged, it's sprinkled clean. Those are, those are positively what the conscience can be. Negatively, the conscience can be, and the New Testament you just saw, has six descriptors. The conscience can be weak. That's three times in 1 Corinthians 8. The conscience can be wounded, also in 1 Corinthians 8. The conscience can be defiled, also in 1 Corinthians 8 in Titus 1. The conscience can be encouraged or emboldened to sin, also 1 Corinthians 8. And the conscience can be evil or guilty, Hebrews 10. And finally, the conscience can be seared as with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4. And I've listed those six in what appears to me to be an order that declines from mistaken, that's weak, to bad, to worse. That final term, seared, seared with a hot iron, that final term depicts a deadened conscience. Here's how John MacArthur puts it. He says, a weak conscience is not the same as a seared conscience. A seared conscience becomes inactive, silent, rarely accusing, insensitive to sin. But then contrast that with the weak conscience. The weakened conscience usually is hypersensitive and overactive about issues that are not sins. Ironically, a weak conscience is more likely to accuse than a strong conscience. And Scripture calls us a weak conscience because it's too easily wounded. People with weak consciences tend to fret about things that should provoke no guilt in a mature Christian who knows God's truth. 
End quote. Okay, that's what a conscience can be, positively and negatively. Next question, so what can the conscience do? Now we're trying to look, look at all those verbs we saw associated with the word conscience. I think three actions. Here they are. Number one, the conscience can bear witness or confirm. Saw that over and over. Second, the conscience can lead you to act a certain way. And I think the New Testament gives us four examples of this. So this isn't on your handout. So the first example is from Romans 2.15. Your conscience can lead you to either accuse or defend yourself based on how your conscience bears witness. Second, uh, your conscience can lead you to submit to the authorities for the sake of your conscience. That's Romans 13. Third, it can lead you not to bother asking where your meat came from because eating meat sacrificed to idols is not something your conscience should condemn you for. That's 1 Corinthians 10. And also from 1 Corinthians 10, it can lead you not to eat meat that someone told you was sacrificed to uh, idols for the sake of their conscience. Okay, so that's the second uh, uh, action a conscience can do. It can lead you to act a certain way. And finally, this is from 1 Corinthians 10, the conscience can judge or try to determine another person's freedom. Okay, that was a lot of data to just kind of soak in. But you, you've seen all the passages, you've thought through this, so now the question is, how would you define it? Someone just puts a microphone in your face. So what's the conscience? What do you say? Uh, here's my attempt. I think it's on your handout. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So consciousness means awareness or sense. And I use that in the definition because it makes it more memorable. Conscience is your consciousness. I, I, I can remember that. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So that definition has some implications. Let me mention a few. One, conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. That's why the definition says your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. What you believe is right and wrong might not be what is actually right and wrong. Okay? So this is what you think, what you believe is right and wrong. You might have uh, what you think is a clear conscience when it's an evil conscience. There are people who have a clear conscience and they think that you might see them on TV or on websites. They, they, they might be advocating, for example, for a pro-abortion policy. I'm not going to argue the ins and outs of this. It's, my position is that the Bible is pro-life. You don't murder people. People in a womb are people, and if you murder them, that's wrong. Okay, that's my position. That's not the very most nuanced way to put it, but that's essentially it. Okay, So I think that it's, it's murder to kill someone in your womb, right? So there are people who think that they are advocating human rights when they say you should be able to do that. I think even though they do that with what they think is a clear clean conscience, it's actually an evil conscience. You follow me? Okay. But it's what they believe is right and wrong, but what they believe is right and wrong is different than what actually is right and wrong. Okay? Another implication. Uh, conscience can change. So your, your conscience is your moral, is your, is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong at any given point in time. I mean, just think back on your own life. There are probably times in your life where you thought something was wrong that right now you don't think is wrong. Or that's something you thought was right that right now do you think is wrong. Right? 
<laughs> uh, that's just part of growing up. Uh, you, you, you change. Your, your, your moral consciousness can change. Third, conscience functions as a guide, monitor, witness, and judge. So your conscience guides you to help you conform to moral standards. It monitors how you conform to them. It testifies to how you conform to them. And then it judges you for how you conform them. And that table you have on the bottom of page three uh, shows you when your conscience functions like a guide, it's looking forward, and negatively it warns you before you do wrong, and positively it urges you to do right. And then when your conscience functions like a monitor, witness, and judge, it's looking back, and it's negatively accusing and condemning you when you do wrong, and commending and defending you when you do right. Okay, that was a lot to take in. I hope you have a sense of what the conscience is. So now, going forward here, here's the plan. Uh, now that you have a better sense of what the conscience is, you might be thinking, so what? I know what the conscience is. Oh, no, 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 not just so what. What we just did is we laid a foundation for answering some really important questions. And these are the questions we're going to seek to answer in the service this morning and this evening and then tomorrow evening. So these are the, the main questions to ask next. Uh, how should you calibrate your conscience to match God's will? That's the main question we'll ask next. And then, what should you do if your conscience condemns you? And we'll end the service, God willing, this morning with that one. And then tonight, uh, how should you relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree? I didn't say if, I said when. When your consciences disagree. And then final question for Monday night, how should you relate to people in other cultures when your consciences disagree? So that's, that's the plan going ahead. And God willing, I pray this would be a, a very edifying time for, for this body. You may have come in thinking this isn't a very applicable subject. Oh, it is. It is. And uh, if you run your eyes over the handout for this morning, you'll see that it's very applicable. All right? So let's close with prayer. And, and then do we dismiss Pastor Miller? Yes. All right. I'll pray. Thank you, God, for this good gift of the conscience to us. We want to use it well. Would you give us wisdom to do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.